Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. A couple things off the top that I want to talk about. For You're strangely smiley. <laughs> don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why either. Um, maybe because the first thing I want to talk about is I uh, just want to thank everybody for listening to our episode with Cassandra last week that was a really fun time we really enjoyed the conversation we really enjoyed the movies that we watched so if you haven't yet listened to it take a little hike back an episode and uh and check it out because yeah it was it was really fun it was really great love having a guest on every once in a while especially when that guest is one of our buddies they tend to be they tend to be yes um next thing i wanted to talk about is that this past week has been spring break Yes. So because you're a teacher, I tend to just take off the same time that you're off, which means that I get to kind of relive well, being a kid. Well, you don't take the whole summer off because you can't. Oh, I wish. But Week or two? Yeah. Um, so yeah, this last week was spring break. We took it off together. It was, it was a pretty eventful spring break. Like We took a, a quick trip to Calgary to see a few things. We'll be posting about that at a later date but it's pretty cool um we went and uh, met up with a friend of ours and we went and checked out the restaurant goro and gun which is named after one of our favorite movies at least one of my favorite movies that we reviewed on this show tampopo so we were like of course we got to go to goro and gun got to get ramen live the tampopo vibes also we're living that sweet alberta life of being in a city that's a three-hour drive away, going to a restaurant and running into one of our closest friends at that restaurant. Yeah, the the number of things that needed to align for that to happen is insane. Just looked across the restaurant and was like, what? <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not just in Calgary, but in Calgary at this restaurant at this exact time. Yeah. Is very Albertan. Yeah, the universe is weird. Um, so, yeah, we did that. 
Um, and then big news on a personal front for me, I got a formal diagnosis of ADHD. So I can stop saying I'll probably have ADHD and just say I have ADHD. You were probably going to have it. Yeah. But now you do have it. Yeah. And it feels good. I think I, I didn't know how good it would feel to have just the words for that and the validation mm-hmm. um, and to have it be real. Mm-hmm. And it feels good <laughs> to just, you know, not tiptoe around it and be like, I, I probably do, but it's not official yet. Blah, blah, blah. We have a few good buddies who have ADHD formally diagnosed. And you told one of them when we were hanging out on Friday and they were like, oh, my goodness, if I'd known, I would have got you a card. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, have, uh, yeah, I love having other ADHDers in my life because we can all just <laughs> commiserate about it. And it's uh, it's really nice. It's nice to have a little a small little community within our immediate group of friends that all have this one thing. It says a lot about you. You like to collect us as little ADHDers. I mean, to be fair, didn't know any of you had ADHD when I collected you. This is true. It's only in recent times that I've been like, huh, what is it about that? And, and many of us probably didn't even know it either. Very true. At least me. Anyway, congratulations. Hey, thank you. You've got the letters. Uh, to, uh, I got all four of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it. In uh, all that busyness, we only watched five smackaroonies. Actually, that's not quite true. We watched some other things that we're not going to cover either right now or we're going to cover them in a different way. But there's five that we are going to talk about. I will say that one of the extra ones was showing our buddy Ashley Speed. And she had never seen Speed before. And the fact that we've watched Speed twice within a, within a few weeks, I, I didn't think that would ever happen. I'll watch it again. I had other good buddies text me and say, I've never seen Speed. Want to watch it with me? And I was like, yep. Yep, oh, yeah. I'll watch it with anyone. Yeah, there's just an uptick in speed watching. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like watching it at like five times the speed? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. okay, let's talk about some movies. All right, Smackaroonie number one. Went to our favorite place, Metro Cinema, and we saw the 2022 drama slash family film. Drama Mel. <laughs> Rice Boy Sleeps. It was written and directed by Anthony Shim. It's it stars uh, Choi Sen Yoon as So Young, uh, Ethan Huang as Dong Hoon, and Doan Noel Huang as Child Dong Huang, and Anthony Shim himself as Simon. The synopsis is set in the nineties. A Korean single mother raises her young son in the suburbs of Canada, determined to provide a better life for him than the one she left behind. So yeah, Canadian movie. Always love to see it. What'd you think of Rice Boy Sleeps? I loved this movie. Mm. So I had, there was one person that I follow on Letterboxd who I think lives in the States who saw it at a film festival and gave it a five out of five. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's enough for me. I'm sold. Um, (laughs) And so I really wanted to see it. It was only playing twice at Metro. And one of the days it was playing, we were going to be in Calgary. So we made sure to go see it at a matinee and I loved it so much and it's criminal that it's not as accessible or well-known as I think it should be. Yeah. That was kind of my biggest takeaway um, as I was leaving the theater. Cause I'm just like, this was magnificent. Mm-hmm. It was so good. It was so amazing. Like honestly, 
it could have been, and I think I said this, it could have been an A24 film mm -hmm. and gotten even better distribution. But that's, I just got hit with this wave of sadness that there's just, there hasn't been very many opportunities, at least that I've seen, for people to go and see this movie. We tried to push people with like our reviews and posting stuff on social to go see that second showing at Metro. It's like if you if you can drop everything you're doing and go see it on Tuesday night because um, it, it is incredible. Um, that's just that's such a tricky thing to navigate with these these smaller indie films, especially one that like this came out last year. And we're just seeing it now in 2023, but it deserves all the viewings. It deserves all the recognition. But yeah, it's it's incredible. What did you like about it? Um, I thought everything about it was really beautiful. Like I thought the story itself was really beautiful. I thought it was beautifully written. The acting is phenomenal, especially from um, Choi Sung Yoon, who plays So Young. Like that, she's the anchor of the film, and she's so fantastic. And then the way that it's shot, like the camera work, I know it will not be for everyone, but it's kind of shot with this like lingering off center, not all the time, but often this lingering off center, like long takes mm -hmm. that for me just create this sense of like memory yes. and like a degree of surreality over a like quite grounded and realistic film. And that is absolutely my jam. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's camera work to die for. And I like that too, because it totally does that, that idea that these really long takes and these kind of meandering takes, they, it is like memory. Like when you think back to your childhood home, you, you, you have your kind of visual map in your head of all of the places and walking down the halls and going into your room or going into your parents' room. And it lets you sit in those spaces longer because of these longer takes or sit in the emotion of what's going on in the scene as far as the movie goes. And you know, I've talked about this multiple times on the show. I am a sucker for a long take. So the fact that there are so many throughout the film. They feel different though than some of the long takes that you're usually like so beholden to. Like these are, um, it feels like you're just in the room watching. Yeah. I've, I've, I've had few long takes that weren't just long takes that I was like, oh, that's so cool. It's a long take. But the the nature of it being a long take hit me so emotionally he heavily. Well, it's almost like you don't realize it's happening until it finally does cut. And then you're like, oh, I can breathe. Yeah. But not in a like action packed way and like an emotionally yeah. action packed way. So there's um there's a line in this film very early on. So I don't feel like this is a spoiler where um, so young is speaking to the principal of her child's school after there's been like a really, really awful racist incident with like the other kids at the elementary school. And um, the teacher just keeps talking about physical violence. And she says, what about emotional violence? Mm -hmm. uh, and this film is a little bit emotionally violent <laughs> mm -hmm. in the best way. Like this film seems to say like, Oh, you want like you're used to your long take old boy, action pack i hit you all with a hammer and you all died um or like it's a true detective that had that really big long take of the shooting through the house yeah fuck that we're gonna give you a long take that hurts your heart <laughs> yes <laughs> so i feel like this is that's worked into the thesis of this of this film something that really frustrated me in in reading stuff about this is a lot of people being like 
Oh, it has so many familiar beats from like a familiar immigrant story. And I'm like, okay, but first of all, how many immigrant stories have we seen? Because not as not nearly as many as we've seen rom-coms or westerns or dumb white boy action films. Like, yeah, and we, they keep bringing those out, and people are like, "Yes, yeah, so I'll go see this one." Too. Exactly. So I'm like, you know, and and a lot of comparisons to just being like, it's so like Minari, and I'm like, because they're both about immigrant families that are Asian. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, both Korean immigrant families, but. I feel like they're very, very, very different films. I really like Minari too, but I feel like they're looking at very different things, particularly in that Minari is so much about um, the differing perspectives of the two parents. Mm-hmm. And this is about a single mother. Like they're, they're very, yeah. very different stories to me. And if there is any familiarity in like, you know, little kids being racist because of what their parents have taught them and like, you know, stuff around names, Mm-hmm. which is not a part of Minari, um, then doesn't that speak to how these experiences are familiar as opposed to that like, oh, well, we've seen that before. Yeah. That's just it. Like, there's, They're all, at the end of the day, different stories about different people. And if there are beats in them that are familiar, then these are the things that tie these different experiences together. And I want more of that. Yeah. That we have a collective of like, this is a common experience that people can relate to, painful or not. Mm-hmm. I don't want less of that. I don't want to say, oh, well, don't put that in there because that one other film about a Korean immigrant family put that in there so you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Because Anthony Shim has spoken about how this is a really personal film to him. I don't think it's um, biography at all. But I think that places and elements are coming from a place of familiarity. Um, specifically, he shot in a lot of the places that he lived and in um, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's some stuff in Korea, which is uh, where his family originates from, like the specific places that he shot. Wow. It was beautiful. So beautiful. Um, but I, I just, yeah, I was really annoyed about that idea. Like both um, like critics and like the lay person commenting on uh, Letterboxd and IMDb being like, uh, I've seen it before. I'm like, what, once? <laughs> like, yeah. one was enough because I want more and more and more stories from people who aren't me. Yeah. I 100% agree. That is, that is really frustrating. And I feel like you kind of need to check yourself a little bit. If your first thought is to be like, oh, it's like Minari, I think that tells you that we don't have enough films about Asian immigrant experience if there's only one other one you can connect it to. Yeah. Like if, if I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of, of comparing stuff to comparing stuff. Like I just think, I think it's so beautiful that like, like the three most recent that I can think of immigrant stories that have come out that have just absolutely floored me are Minari Rice Boy Sleeps and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the three of those can exist from this point of view of people that have immigrated but tell such different stories. Yeah, I find all three of them to be incredibly different. While they have threads that might be relatable to one person and might not be relatable to another. And that's exactly why we need so many stories. Because yeah. not everything's going to connect with everybody. Yeah. Not, that's pee pee poo poo. But for for these two nuggets over here, like we we love it and we encourage it, and we love seeing so many different stories being told. 
I will say something that I am seeing a lot of lately and I am just like so here for Mm -hmm. is, and I don't know if it was just us that are seeing it, but um, media being made right now that's set in Canada during the 90s and the early 2000s, which is like our time. (laughs) Yeah. And there's something that's even more relatable on another level. Like when we we talked about when we uh, saw I Like Movies, there's something about not only it being set in the 90s, 2000s, but also seeing like Canadian money and seeing houses that look like they're in the Canadian suburbs. Yeah, so it's it's I Like Movies, it's Now Rice Boy Sleeps, it's Tegan and Sarah's High School. Mm-hmm. There's just this like plethora of stuff coming out in general um, from like people who are now millennials like us mm-hmm. making art about their experience when they were younger, which would be at the same time as us. So that's happening across the board. Like in After Sun, we were fr- like not Frankie, sorry, we were uh, Sophie, Sophie, Sophie's age at the point in time that the film is set. So it's very relatable. But the Ireland and Scotland, I guess Scotland, not Ireland, just think of Paul Mescal. Um, the Scotland of it all, perhaps it's not that relatable, but then you watch films like this that are set in Canada in the nineties and the aughts. And I'm like that, it looks like the places we were in Mm -hmm. like the Canadian suburbs, I guess, whether you're outside of Toronto or you're in Vancouver or you're in Calgary, they have a vibe. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Um, And I am here for it. Yeah. Um, speaking of after sun, like you kind of talked about it a little bit too, that while Anthony Shim, it's maybe not verbatim his life experience, but he's pulling on these threads from his experience that that's where, as soon as the film ended, I was immediately to make immediately able to make the ties to after sun both. It just made me feel a very similar way that as soon as the credits started rolling, (laughs) so did the tears. Like it just, I was already crying from moments in the in the film, but as soon as the credits hit and you let the experience wash over you, mm-hmm. you just kind of have to sit in that. And most people in our theater did. Yeah, there was this very <laughs> sweet moment I saw where the thing about Metro that I love is that it's a um, it's a go to the movies by yourself kind of place. Mm-hmm. Like we are often there, and like a third to half the audience is watching it by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and there was somebody sitting near the front of the theater watching by themselves and they kind of got up partway through the credits. They sat for a while. They clearly let it linger. I think it was emotional to this person too. They stood up, they were walking out of the theater and we were in the mezzanine and they saw somebody that they knew who was also watching the movie by themselves and like went to say hi, but that person was not ready yet. And it was so emotional. And then there was just this really sweet moment of like, Oh, uh, I like, I mean, I couldn't hear anything, but just like this, like very gentle, sweet, like, Nice to see you. Pat on the shoulder. And I'll, leave you I'll, to I'll it. let you have your have your space and then walking away. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um But we speak to that a lot. Just to let people not pop people's bubbles. Cause it it could be, you know, even with films that aren't as emotionally heavy as something like Rice Boy Sleeps or After Sun, but even something that is silly, there could be some nostalgia wrapped up in somebody for that. So immediately popping their bubble takes them out of that experience a little bit so i definitely don't think this person meant to do that no 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 and i wasn't saying that it was rude but i think they recognized that they yeah they were like oh shoot okay i'll leave you to it yeah yeah yeah. um which is great super respectful there's a uh bit from a review of this film that i I just thought was really well written that i'd like to read Mm -hmm. so it's from alan hunter of screen daily 
riveting. Um, and Alan Hunter said, Shim, quote, displays a sensitivity to the characters and the situations in which they find themselves. He never judges. And Christopher Liu's gently roving camera work and single takes invite the viewer to lean in, observe, and take stock of all of the emotions at play. The changing aspect ratios also reflect the confinement and openness of the different countries. And he is so well served by his cast, with an impressive so young capturing the determination and fortitude of a character who puts everything into giving her son a new and better life. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I that's really like very, that. very nice. But that's also, uh, that, that sets me up perfectly for something else I wanted to talk about was that that shift in aspect ratios. I've never seen such an affecting aspect ratio change in a film ever because we spend the majority of the film in kind of like the classic 4-3 and then at one point in the film it opens up to be full 16-9. It hit me on an emotional level just such a simple thing when it happened. And that's craft. Yeah. And like purpose. Yeah. Like where it's not it's not just aspect ratio because it looks cool. It's aspect ratio for a particular emotional and thematic resonance within the viewer whether you notice it or not because i didn't notice it but then afterwards i was like but i will say for most of the movie i really liked it and then the last act floored me Mm -hmm. and then i loved it (laughs) i was like i really like this movie this movie's really good and then the last act i was like no damn this movie's amazing (laughs) yeah yeah i think it hooked me a little bit earlier than it did for you which is which is okay um but yeah, like that's what sent it over the top was that, that last act. Do you know anything about the title? No. I'm actually surprised um, that you don't. So the title of this film is also the title of a... Oh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. Oh, Yonsei and Alex? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you did know that? I, I didn't know if like that was taken from this. So it was. So I guess Anthony Shim um, always listens to music while he writes. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the records that he had kind of on repeat while he was writing this film. And so he just used it as like a temporary title to start with. And then the more he wrote, the more he felt like the title actually connected to the theme and plot and was like, okay, guess that's, guess that's happening. (laughs) Um, But it, yeah, it is, it's from his listening to that album. You know, what's funny is that I, I I heard the title and I'm like, Oh, there's that album by Yonsei and Alex. Cool. And then I just kind of forgot about it. Left that thought. I was like, I thought you liked that, that artist. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's cool. I like that. That's kind of like Mike Mills vibe. How he, when he was writing, he was listening to the National a lot, and then he just had people from the National score. Come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing about this film, because it really, yeah, not not as many people have seen it as maybe even want to see it, just because it hasn't been available. Like, there's nowhere to watch it um, legally, digitally. Mm-hmm. I don't know about illegally. I'm I'm incapable of that. But it did win the Toronto Critics Award for Best Canadian Film, which is like one of the more prestigious Canadian film awards. And it has like the um, highest monetary value. Mm. So that's a big deal. And then it was um, in TIFF's top 10. Yeah, I don't know if it was top 10 Canadian. It might have been top 10 Canadian. Um, mm. But I hope that means that, you know, I think sometimes these smaller films and, and the more you and I get into like festival circuits, the more I realize this that sometimes it just takes them a while to get the distribution. Mm-hmm. Like look at Skin Amarink. Yeah. Right. And, and I hope that this film finds the right distributor because it's really, really good. Yeah. And I'd also really like to own it physically, but I don't know if that's a pipe dream. I know. 
yeah i i really want more eyes to to see this thing because it is incredible um and it's got it's got dad stuff in it got a lot of dad stuff in it so that's like our whole jam we're like oh great this is so on brand and we love it yeah like i'd love to do a deep dive on it but just for us (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly um but if you do get a chance to see it share your thoughts with us uh on instagram because we want we want to talk about this with more people and just not enough people have seen it yet so reach out to us baddad.raddad on instagram but uh yeah can't can't say how grateful i am for this film and how incredible it was how to make you feel this sounds almost trite, but it just made me feel so profoundly moved mm-hmm. in so many ways. Like I think it's hard to even put a specific emotion to it. I just felt so much emotion. Cried yeah. a lot. How about you? <laughs> I put down emotionally devastated. But and and I feel like that can sound negative. Not at all. It's the way that I love to experience. Emotionally de- devastated, non-derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. It's a little uh, Smosh reference for you there. <laughs> Every time we tell people we watch Smosh, they're like, Smosh is still a thing. Yeah, this came up recently because I was like, oh, like in Smosh. And we were with a group of people and they were like, what? <laughs> you watch Smosh? What about it? <laughs> yeah, come at me. <laughs> yeah, I have a crush on all of them. What about it? Yeah, whatever. Kiss me. <laughs> All right, next movie. <laughs> so a while ago, um, it's been a minute since we've had mystery movie picks for just you and me because we had our episode with Cassandra where we kind of had a plan, a curated plan. We don't, in our general week to weeks watching movies, we're not as planned as that other than the movies we want to go see in the theater. And prior to our guest episode, um, you had stolen a double mystery pick yes, for bed knobs and broomsticks of all things. I'm not proud of it. And I said, well, if you do that, then I get to have two mystery picks next time. Only fair. Only fair. So I get two in a row coming up here. So we were in Calgary, um, little Airbnb right off a busy road. I sure know how to pick them. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, we don't like to do much other than watch movies. So, and it was really cold. Like Calgary is supposed to be milder than Edmonton and it was so cold. So normally we would love to just like go and walk around and experience things. But I also didn't bring an appropriate jacket and. Sort of your life. You take a lot of heat for not wearing the appropriate jacket. Yeah. But I have put my winter jacket away at the back of the closet and I'm not taking it out again. (laughs) It's snowing right now. I don't care. Um, (laughs) So we were in Calgary and this was actually a movie that. When we had Cassandra on and we were talking about what we were going to watch, we decided on we were each going to do a mystery pick, so three mystery picks, and then we were going to watch a film that none of us had seen and then one that all of us had seen before, which is kind of how we generally do it when we have a guest for a regular, regular episode. episode. Um, and then sometimes if the guest is open to it, we'll also do a an, another film, which is uh, one that we'll all go to in the theater, which is sometimes also the film that none of us have seen. but. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ones that she suggested was the love witch for one that she wanted to rewatch, but we hadn't seen it. Right. And it kind of put it back on my radar. I had been really interested in seeing this. I don't know if it was when it came out. I have very distinct memories of seeing the trailer at Metro. So I don't know if it's more recently played at Metro, Hmm. but it has been one that's on my radar. 
So I picked The Love Witch. 2016 film, comedy, horror, romance. Love that. <laughs> yeah. It was directed and written by Anna Biller, and it stars Samantha Robinson as Elaine Parks, Laura Waddell as Trish, Gian Keyes as Griff, Jennifer Ingram as Barbara, and Jared Sanford as Gahan. Gahan. God. <laughs> Take your pick. Uh, synopsis. A modern day witch uses spells and magic to get men to fall in love with her with deadly consequences. Wow. Uh, what did you think of the love witch? Um, yeah, I, I, you know what? I, I don't even remember seeing a trailer for this at Metro, but I remember vaguely that it was playing at Metro. So I didn't really have context for this other than it was a movie. <laughs> True, but it I, was a movie. <laughs> um, and I did not remember ever seeing a trailer for it. And I thought once this started, I thought that it was an older film. Fooled me because <laughs> the way that this is made is gorgeous. I, it's it's um, incredible. So it it utilizes the looks of old like 60s, 70s horror dramas of the time. And it just through the lighting and the framing and the makeup and how everybody looks, it, it captures it beat for beat of how these, these old TV shows and movies used to look, but it also captured their hamminess, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. So we've been saying this about speed, but I'm going to say it about this movie too. This thing fucks so hard. <laughs> like It's so good. Yes. But I could see, I could see someone just like hating this so much. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like two hours, so if you're not in for it at the beginning, it's yeah. a long sit if it's not your jam. And I, I knew I knew all of that about this, and I didn't know how you were going to feel about it, but I did think it was going to be fun enough <laughs> to watch like when we had just driven three hours and it was cold and we were in an Airbnb in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you liked it. Loved it. I loved it. I think I gave it like four and a half out of five. <laughs> Yeah, you. Re- when it was done, you. I think you said I would just love to live in a TV show of that. Yeah, I would watch season after season of something that looked like that that was coming out now. Because when I discovered this came out in 2016, after the fact, my mind was blown. I also though, because yeah, it looks amazing. That part's really cool, but I also feel like thematically, it's got some really amazing, complicated stuff going on. Yeah, with like what's being explored. I personally will always be interested in art that looks at sex and death together. Yeah. Um, which this film does. Yeah. In a kind of fun way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if we're uh, okay with saying that. Yeah. Um, it's so feministy. And- <laughs> Fem- feministy makes it sound like feminist light. <laughs> but I think you just. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's feminist. Yeah. E. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like kind of feministy. But it feels like one that I would like more and more every time I watch it. Yeah. And I would get more out of like what's going on aesthetically, thematically, and plot wise. Mm-hmm. Kind of putting those things together and kind of the social commentary on them. Um, also, like this is probably not appropriate for like what Anna Biller's trying to do, but Elaine is so beautiful. <laughs> like she's so beautiful. I mean, she's gorgeous. The the movie on the whole is just sexy as shit and so horny but it adds to the euphoric experience that is this movie overall so i i found um an interview with anna biller on a website called feminism and visual culture where she said some really interesting things um i'll start with 
talking a little bit about, um, I guess, the amount of work that had to go into making this look like a film from the 60s and 70s. So one of the things that was awesome, whenever she's driving, it, it that particularly looks like it. And there's a, a part of it where I was like, this feels so Alfred Hitchcock. I guess, yeah, it was meant to be a direct homage to the bird, the birds. Mm. Um, and they use rear projection photography for that. Anna Biller worked with M. David Mullen, who I guess is an expert on period cinematography. And they had to create like this hard lighting style that it just isn't what we do in film anymore. Mm-hmm. So doing things like diffusion filters for the close-ups, kaleidoscope lens for these like drug trip sequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also coaching the actors to do stylized classic presentational acting um, to feel yeah. like the acting of the time. And I guess in particular... Samantha Robinson has been like really praised for how she nailed that stylized acting. Now, if you don't know that about it, you're probably just gonna be like, wow, the acting's bad. But Samantha Robinson was also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So like in a very different films, that's not mm-hmm. just how she acts. It was, this was a intentional performance. So it was like all very practical. Like, yeah. And it was shot on 35 millimeter. So it was because it's cool as shit. <laughs> so... Before I read a little bit from the interview, I, I was reading on Wikipedia, such a cool resource, um, that one of the things that Biller aims to do with her art is to bring female glamour back to film with, quote, stylish, detailed sets and props that fulfill women's fantasies rather than men's and give viewers more to look at on the screen rather than focusing their attention on the female characters as sexual objects, mm. um, which I thought was cool. So a couple things that I read that I just really, really liked from the interview. So here's one of the quotes. Um, She said the 1930s was a time of feminine glamour and also a gay male sensibility. We had camp and glamour for decades, but then it was almost as if someone had said, that's enough. Let's topple Joan Crawford. Let's topple glamour and make movies about men. Those movies will be grimy and gritty filmed outdoors and we won't have beautiful lighting, but it's going to be like reality. I mean, it's one type of reality, but I like movies that reflect my inner reality, a fantasy life. I think movies used to be about an idealized world, but now they're almost about a world that's under-glamorized, less glamorized than how life is. Mm. That was really interesting. Yeah, I I like that a lot because, yeah, this this movie is, in more ways than one, it is beautiful. And hearing about the craft and the thoughtfulness behind the craft that went into it, not just aesthetically, but also, yeah, from the acting and from... The performances that were coming out uh, and and the focus of the plot and the themes that it's exploring. Well, then I have a little bit about her speaking directly to what she's trying to say with the film, which is awesome. I love when filmmakers do that and they're not like, mm, keep that a secret. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like it. So she said about the film, um, she describes her films as, quote, feminist. And conscious, not feminist, not feminist, feminist, my bad, feminist and quote, consciously and very deliberately constructed to try to make people understand what it is like to live as a woman of the world, the Mm. way you have to constantly negotiate. Basically, the love, which is about a woman who's been driven crazy by the patriarchy. If you don't understand it in that way, then you don't understand it at all. I mean, that's the only way to understand it. Certainly, (laughs) some people looked at it and said it's just pretty and has nothing to say. But to me, they didn't get anything about it. If you're looking at it through a feminist lens, then every single moment of the film funnels into the idea that the struggle this character has is to maintain a central personhood in the midst of only ever being looked at as an object and how she negotiates that. Sure, she's a sociopath and she's a narcissist, but you can be driven to that by always having been looked at as an object right from your time as a little girl, where your core has been hollowed out because there's no self-esteem beyond physical appearance. That is a frightening way to live. Yeah, that's really well said. 
Oh, she's brilliant. Sounds brilliant. And then I have one last uh, quote from her. I, I read this whole interview and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, quote, cinema is a radical form naturally. And I think I'm a voyeur or a kind of pervert. And that's the way I watch movies. You know, I'm interested in glamour and I'm also interested in the sensuality of female stars like Ingrid Bergman and Notorious. I'm from 1946. I write female characters who are flawed, but who don't necessarily want to see themselves as a character who is flawed. And I think that's unusual. Damn. Yeah. I just love it. And I guess that um, she collaborated a lot with Samantha Robinson to like create a lane. Like she gave um, her a lot of ability to help grow the character. Mm-hmm. And the two of them would watch what she calls the great sociopathic performances featuring women. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to get ready for this character and i just think that's that's so cool i don't know i i really liked it yeah it was it was super fun and it the horror aspect of it like it gave me some like jalo vibe it gave me some yeah very hitchcock kind of vibe as well but but the fact is that because this is this kind of film being made now you're also able to pull in some of the 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 latter decade influences like stuff from the 80s stuff from the 90s that like there might be homages here or there from that that just didn't exist in the 60s and 70s so well it's so such a like cinematic period piece at the same time that it is so contemporary yeah which is really really cool um so she was when annabella was writing it she was reading self-help books to get ideas and she read this piece of advice in a self-help book uh, quote, if a woman wants to keep a man, she should love him less than he loves her. And that was like the central premise of the film. Checks out. I love it. It's incredible. Is it on Shudder? It's on Shudder. That's where we watched it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you got, if you got Shudder, even if you don't, get the free trial and watch. Yeah, watch it and then be done. And watch it on Shudder. Okay, so here's the thing I'm most excited about. And I don't know. I've been waiting to tell you this, but I don't know how, if you're going to care. Okay. Um, Anna Biller is working on a Bluebeard film. Do you know anything about Bluebeard? I don't know anything about Bluebeard. Oh, Elliot. It's one of the best. So Bluebeard is like a guy. Uh, spoilers for the legend of Bluebeard, if you don't know it. Um, but he's he's a guy and he gets this like new wife. And it's very like gothic horror, like think Haunting of Hill House. Of like, she's alone in this house she doesn't really know much about her new husband but there's these like bad vibes and he keeps like going away and he says you can go in any room except for that one so what does she do of course she goes in that one what do you think's in there scaries all his other dead wives now think about this person anna biller who made the love witch making that movie has she said if she's like continuing this similar style of filmmaking? Well, I don't know if it would be identical, but I think that she's, you know, reading all this stuff. I think she's committed to an aesthetic mm-hmm. and whether that aesthetic's different or not, I think she will have an intentional aesthetic mm-hmm. and will stick to that. But I just think her making a Bluebeard film. That sounds sick. Yeah. I'm like so into that. Um, that sounds really cool. I'm sorry. I couldn't get more excited. Yeah, I should have just told you ahead of time. Let me tell you, if you don't know Bluebeard, y'all go look up Bluebeard. Bluebeard is a horrifying exercise in gothic horror. I love it. Well, I'm glad you liked the movie I picked. Yeah, it was so good. (laughs) It's one of those ones where I'm like, I just want to study it in school. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I get it. Read a paper. Yeah, but still I'll just talk about it on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, fair. On my pod. So how did the love witch make you feel? 
transported to a brilliant, sexy, and ridiculous world. <laughs> I like that. What about you? I was just really dazzled by the aesthetic and I was obsessed with the story. Like, give mm -hmm. me any story. I, I love an unhinged woman. Yeah. I love possession. Thirst last week was great. Mm -hmm. Midsommar, mm -hmm. Pearl. Yeah. I don't care when, I don't care where. Give me an unhinged woman and I'm going to probably love it. Okay. We were still in Calgary. And like I said, we met up with a friend of ours, went to get some ramen, and then we wanted to see a movie together. And the movie we decided on was the 2023 drama slash thriller Inside. No, not, to be not, Bo, not Bo Burner's <laughs> Inside, nor the French film that we also covered on this show titled Inside. Um, it was directed by Vasilis Katsupis. It was written by him as well as Ben Hopkins. I mean, there's only one person worth mentioning in the cast because it's pretty much just him the whole time. You know him. We love him. Willem Dafoe as Nemo. I did not know that was his name, but that makes me laugh after the fact because uh, Homeboy was in Finding Nemo and they even had a little nod to this in this film of having the same kind of fish that Willem Dafoe played in Finding Nemo in the apartment that he's in in this movie. And that tickled me a little bit. The synopsis is, Nemo, a high-end art thief, is trapped in a New York penthouse after his heist doesn't go as planned. Locked inside with nothing but priceless works of art, he must use all his cunning and invention to survive. What'd you think of Inside, not Bo Burnham? I mean, disappointing that it wasn't Bo Burnham. Yeah, I do think like some. when something that iconic has recently come out, maybe reconsider your title. It feels like a stubborn like, no, this is what I wanted to call it, you know, but th th but that's fine. Okay, so this is complicated for me because while I was watching it, I was so engaged. Yeah. Like I was all in. I was I found it compelling. I thought it was really nice to look at. Yeah. Like I thought it was well shot. I thought it was tense. Willem Dafoe was amazing. But this just kind of fell apart for me once it was over. Hmm. Like the more I thought about it, the more I was like, but it doesn't make sense. Right. Like it doesn't make sense based on some of the things he does. It doesn't make sense that no one would have come to get him. Right. And because the film isn't aiming for surreality, that then doesn't work for me. Totally works for me if we're like, the whole thing is suspension of disbelief. But if you're going to try and ground this in some sense of reality, then I need it to stand up, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's so strange because I really enjoyed watching it. But then the more I thought about it after, the less I liked it. Right. How about you? Well, it's funny because leading up to it, I was not really excited for this movie, but as it kind of got closer and closer to it being released and then us deciding we were going to go see it, I became more and more excited to see it. And I'm similar. Like I, I was totally compelled the whole time and it's because I love, and we've talked about how much we love closed circuit shit. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm so, all in on a closed circuit film. Like if you like panic room, Castaway, knock at the cabin, stuff like that. And I mean, also like Willem Dafoe is incredible as always in this. He, like I said, he kind of holds down the whole movie and he's just magnetic to watch. But yeah, like it's not the most amazing thing I've ever seen, though it was compelling the whole way through. And it's not something I feel I will need to watch again ever. 
Yeah, it's such it's such a strange experience to watch something and be like, I am not at all mad that I watched it. That was a good time. Yeah, it was. Yeah. But I don't if someone asked me if they should watch it, I'd be like, oh, if there's nothing else on. Yeah. There's better things you could watch. And save some money. Just wait till it comes on a streamer. Although I must say, Gold Star Theater audience. Yeah. It was it was a strange theater experience though. Like we went to this uh we went to this theater in Calgary that's in a mall that's being it's it's essentially being kind of like torn down and renovated and won't exist the way that it currently is. And the theater is tucked away in there. And I guess it's but really, not in a grand like Chinook or Silver City way. Yeah, like it's it's run down. It's an older Cineplex theater. They don't do nine o'clock showings. So the 7 p.m. shows are the last ones there. And we showed up. We're in line for the concession. And I'm like, yeah, I want to get some popcorn. This will be good. Meanwhile, there are just starting to become person after person coming back to the till of like, this popcorn's too salty. And it's the it's over and over. I'm like, do I want to get popcorn? <laughs> but then they were making making a fresh batch. So I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chance it. And it was saltier than usual, but I could handle it. It was good. <laughs> But, oh, man, we got to the front and the person working, as soon as we walked up, it's just the biggest, like, what can I get for you? Like, Rough night. Yeah. Just like, I, I felt very, I felt very sympathetic for them. Um, and it's just, yeah, an older theater. They have very cold, like, uh, like white lights that that are lighting the theater. So there's not the, this warm movie theater, nice kind of vibe in there it's just very cold it's like they're about to clean the place <laughs> uh so it's just like a weird vibe for the theater but i think because of that that it's not a newer cinema that exists in calgary where people could go that this is this attracted more of the the metro style people that there was people there by themselves and people that just probably come out to because this is close to their house or that they know that there's not gonna be a bunch of losers there uh pretty yeah respectful audience. yeah and i could i just could see this film having a bad audience like i could see this being one that we see it a cineplex here in edmonton and and it's an audience like when we saw megan or Mm -hmm. when we saw infinity pool right so i i was just like wow big claps for eau claire mall cineplex calgary um yeah i don't know this was (laughs) Like there's not even much to talk about with this movie. Yeah. Um, the, the last thing that I have, and I'm curious if you do this, what I, a part of the fun that makes movies like this with plots like this compelling is you kind of start doing the, what would I do in this situation? Or how would I handle mm-hmm. this? And you kind of start putting yourself in the character's shoes. And sometimes that can become a bit of a scary thing because it starts becoming real in my in my mind of like, Oh man, if this happened, like I'd be screwed. I'd be so screwed. Do you do that at all? I mean, yes, but I don't get scared about it. <laughs> it's usually what I, like after the fact. Like if I have you seen the movie, and then we're going to bed, and it's like a last thought before I go to sleep of like, oh my god, you're like gasp. <gasps> what if I got locked in an art thief? <laughs> locked in an art thief. You know what I mean? I mean, okay. The last thing I'll say about this is that. I just felt this movie wanted to stay accessible to a general audience. And so had these glimpses of either going like full icky. Yeah. Or glimpses of going like really surreal. 
Like there was there was a reveal I thought was going to happen that was going to be like very disturbing that never happened. Right. Um, that I kept thinking they were hinting at or there's these like these moments where there starts to feel like maybe there's a mystery and they yeah. just never go anywhere. Yeah. And so it's like it. I, I'm frustrated at the film for staying in that middle ground mm-hmm. and not either pushing into like full on Twin Peaks, like surreal nightmare. Yeah. Or like full on Mr. Robot style. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like hyper realism or like still. No, I'm in saying like, no, I'm saying like Mr. Robot style. Like there is a group of people trying to do a bad thing. Right. That there's like a mystery behind who this man who owns this apartment is and what right. he's doing in real life. Right. Because there was these like threads that seem to suggest that maybe there was more going on. Yeah. And that, but they never go anywhere. Yeah. And how that ties into Willem Dafoe's character. Exactly. And yeah. No, and I I'm even with you felt there. like what it was trying to say about art was very general. Yeah. Like, so I'm an English teacher in Alberta and we have Alberta education approved rubrics um, for essay writing that go from zero, which means you didn't do it or didn't meet the criteria to poor, limited, satisfactory, proficient, excellent. And a satisfactory means you did everything right, but it was general. It was adequate. This is a satisfactory. It's a six out of 10. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like it, it, it had some p- panache. Yeah. And it was nice to look at. And Willem Dafoe is awesome. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, it's just adequate. It's just okay. And it's frustrating because yeah. it had all of the makings of something that could have been excellent. Yeah. I think that the way you put it of it just feeling accessible for everybody was evident in one thing that they did. While I appreciated the thing that they did as a Canadian, it... uh Oh, <laughs> it, 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 it's what made it feel accessible to me in that one of the things we keep going back to throughout the film is a thermostat and it has the Fahrenheit temperature and the Celsius temperature <laughs> so that everybody would know what temperature it was. I did appreciate that because I would have had no clue. Yeah. 73 degrees Fahrenheit. Great. But something that I would say to one of my creative writing students, if they were doing something like that, I'd be like, is there a way to demonstrate this without telling? Like, is there a way to like show this? So if you want to just have Fahrenheit on there, but you know that your Celsius audience isn't going to understand that. <laughs> your Celsius audience. <laughs> <laughs> How do you indicate that in other ways? And that pushes like the limits of your creativity to how to tell that story and show that to your audience without them having to see the number. Because I did, I did appreciate that. But then in retrospect, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I just. It was one of those things that pulled me out. A little bit and just made it like this is for everybody. And I'm not much of a like I can suspend my disbelief pretty darn good. And this this wasn't don't worry, darling, levels of me being like nothing makes any sense. And, I, and, and I'm not here for it. Usually I'm like nothing makes any sense and I'm here for it. I was watching it and I, and I liked it. And then after it was done, I was like, but what was the point of any of it? Like, what was the thematic point? What was the emotional point? What was the story point? I didn't like there's kind of no point. It was like a really good episode of something on TV. Yeah, I think the point was for us to pay money to go sit in a place and eat extra salty popcorn. Well, then it's successful. Yeah, you got us. You, you did indeed get us. Um, how did it make you feel? It made me feel compelled and captivated, pun intended, um, but forgettably so. I, I echo that too, and I'll, and I'll also just add that 
despite it feeling like it's just something for everybody or trying to be something for everybody, it made me feel delighted that Willem Dafoe can hold down a whole film by himself. That's the power of Willem Dafoe. I'm really excited to talk about this next one, although I don't have many notes on it because <laughs> I think it's still scrambling my brain a little bit, but it's great. So I uh, had my second in a row mystery pick much better than your bed knobs and broomsticks, I think. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and this is a movie that I've been wanting to watch for a long time because it was programmed for not your final girl at Metro. I think two. I don't know. COVID made things weird. I don't know. It was a while ago. And I wanted to see it, um, and then it just didn't work out, and it's kind of been on my radar since then. Um, Criterion Channel has a very useful what's leaving at the end of this month, Mm. and this movie was on there, and so I snuck it in on March 30th because I was like, it's going to be gone, and it's not anywhere else. Um, I picked Three Women, 1976 drama mystery thriller, directed and written by Robert Altman, our first Robert Altman film. Um, with some uncredited writing by Patricia Resnick. It stars Shelley Duvall as Millie Lamoureux, Sissy Spacek as Pinky Rose, Janice Rule as Willie Hart, and Robert Fortier as Edgar Hart. The synopsis, two roommates slash physical therapists, one a vain woman and the other an awkward teenager, share an increasingly bizarre relationship. What do you think of three women? I, I feel like I'm still formulating all of my thoughts about this movie because the experience of it was so dreamlike and surreal and almost otherworldly. And you're just sitting there waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it it kind of never does. And I kind of love that. (laughs) It's just this very unsettling experience and not really knowing anything about this film not knowing what genre it sits in and what the story is so this is interesting i knew nothing really about robert altman prior to us watching this yeah this is our first robert altman film i believe yes um and i was reading a bit about him and i guess that he's often been defied as anti-genre checks out what i said then yes so (laughs) i love this charlie chaplin's daughter geraldine chaplin has compared the humor in Robert Altman's films, the humor in Charlie Chaplin films, saying, quote, they're funny in the right way, funny in a critical way of what the world is and the world we live in. They were both geniuses in their way. They alter your experience of reality. They have their world and they have their humor. That humor is so rare. Altman made it clear that he did not like, oh, this is a different thing. Sorry that he, um, like Altman wasn't really focused on storytelling um, instead, he, he, he actively disliked the word story. Uh, he told his biographer Mitchell Zuckoff and believed that a plot should be secondary to an exploration of pure or even better impure human behavior. I totally got that from this. Yeah. Cause it's all, yeah, it's all focused on the totally captivating Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall. They are so amazing in this. Yeah. Love to see them get out of their Stephen King. Yes. And just into like a film where they're opposite another woman. Mm -hmm. And oh, they just, they're both so good in it. Well, and yeah, like this is coming, I feel like the year after Carrie or a few years after Carrie came out. Close to, yeah. For Sissy Spacek. And like 70s Spacek is just shaping up to be 
incredible. Like she's just, she has those really wide eyes that when she gets them, there's just like something so unsettling about it that just draws you in. And then, yeah, Shelley Duvall, I really only know her from The Shining and the clips that I've seen of her as olive oil in the Popeye movie, which I think was also directed by Robert Altman. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I had this feeling, though, because Shelley Duvall is kind of famously known for being extremely mistreated on the set of The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. And then in this film, she's playing somebody that is, for all intents and purposes, people are pretty mean to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just at, like, I'm just in the camp of like, leave Shelley Duvall alone. <laughs> what I what I read about this film though is that, um, like the Love Witch, really would have been a really interesting double feature, um, but we mm-hmm. watched them a, a few days apart. Uh, like the Love Witch, Robert Altman, or I guess rather like Anna Biller. Um, he very much works with his actors to create the characters. Like he kind of has like a loose idea of what he wants to do and then mm-hmm. um, lets kind of the actors take some control, a lot of improvisation in the dialogue. And Shelley Duvall very much helped create the character. Which is great Could too. not be different from The Shining. Yeah. And I, I totally understand why as an actor you'd want to do, like I think it's probably more fun to play somebody that's unlikable than it is to just play somebody that's perfect. And neither of these characters are perfect. No. Um, This movie is just like, it's weird and it's creepy and it's funny and it's mysterious and it's confusing and... Cringy. Yeah, and it's all really good. Yeah. I mean, the the dynamic between Shelley Duvall's character and Sissy Spacek's character, it's just so... You can see how the kind of the social norms kind of start breaking down and how them interacting with each other starts to shift. And there's like it's just set up to like something there's there's this plot line of Shelley Duvall is like this homemaker that is really good at cooking. But like the stuff she cooks is just like equivalent to fucking like PB and J. But it's, she speaks so eloquently. It's and, like the party scene in Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. And I'm just like, ew, I don't want to eat any of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, but it's it's put on with so much flourish that you're like, what? But that's that's a perfect kind of encapsulation for how the film makes you feel. Of <laughs> There's just, just my like, favorite what? review I saw on Letterboxd. I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like, come for Shelley Duvall, stay for the tuna melt recipe. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's wild. I am... Um, what I can say is I now very much want to see Robert Altman's other films. I do too. And it's weird because they're not highly rated. Uh, like a good chunk of them. They are on Letterboxd. Oh, really? It's like Nashville. Right. Other ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that he has some very well high rated ones on Letterboxd. Um, I think it was on IMDb and people are more pee pee poo poo on IMDb. Yeah. They're not cool like us. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love this story. I guess that uh, so he's he was making weird movies, this guy, right? <laughs> yeah. But the head of 20th Century Fox at the time, his name was Alan Ladd Jr. And he just like liked Altman. And he, I guess he felt that he could indulge like the offbeat stuff that Altman wanted to do because 20th Century Fox had like commercial success of Star Wars. So like, oh, he's like, yeah, we can we can do some weird stuff. We're, we're doing fine. Um, who cares if we don't make our money back? And in the in the book Easy Riders, we got Star Wars. We're good. Yeah, in the book Easy Riders, um, 
there's a recollection of Altman and this guy named Tommy Thompson. Nice. Uh, driving to the airport when Altman says, quote, let's stop at 20th. I had a dream last night. I want to sell it to Laddie. Keep the engine running. It'll only take a minute. He, they stop the car, goes into the office, makes the deal, gets back into the car and gets to his flight on time. And that was for three women. That's a, that's incredible. <laughs> like imagine just having somebody that's like, yeah, do whatever weird shit you want to do. We got Star Wars in our back We're pocket. We're good. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> now, would it surprise you at all to know that one of the biggest influences on this film was Persona? No. Man, I'm so glad that we've seen Persona. <laughs> I just see... Episode four of the podcast, baby. If yeah, you haven't listened yeah, to no, it. If you haven't, uh, go back and listen. But it's so... Through the things that we've been watching, I feel like it comes up quite frequently. Because Pers- it's so good. Yeah, truly. If you haven't seen Persona, Ingmar Bergman's, Bergman's Persona, check it out. But I totally see the influence here. Just like some of the dynamic stuff and some of the, the framing and, and whatnot of these characters. Maybe not literally, but as characterizations. Yeah. This is another one that like I would really like to study. <laughs> love to write some papers. Love to hear what other people had to say about it. Who knew the, your uh, your picks were very ac- academic? Is it surprising? Nah, you're nerd. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry, but I teach. feel like like one of the things. Sorry, teach. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I felt really compelled by in this film is like, and and you even said I don't know. We were like half an hour into the movie, and you're like, "Who's the third woman?" why is it called three women and something that i kept thinking about is this concept because i because i talk about it when i teach Macbeth. um depending on the year that i teach it and how interested students are sometimes i talk about it more sometimes i talk about it less but like the three like three witches representing the maiden the mother and the crone Mm -hmm. it's like the three stages of womanhood um and I feel like that's in this movie, but it's not so simple as that. Yeah. Like there's so much more ambiguity and like blurring of roles and boundaries and binaries and categories. And I just really love that. It was Roger Ebert's favorite movie in 1977. Damn, over Star Wars. Yes, so. Fucking cool as shit. I think we would have been buds with him. I think he would have loved Bad Dad, Rad Dad. You heard it here. Roger Ebert. R.I.P. Would have loved and endorsed Bad Dad Reddit. He would have brought us into the fold. Yeah. I think. He's like, we need two more thumbs. <laughs> Four more thumbs? Four thumbs up. from Siskel and Ebert and Burton and Cuss. What? Siskel and Ebert. Who are the um, tiger people? Siegfried and Roy? Yeah, got confused there. We're good. We're good. <laughs> Uh, Roger Ebert and Joel Siskel were not killed by tigers. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that, but all um, right. Yeah, th- this film, I, I also, something I absolutely love about it is that it tries manipulating the audience at every turn into feeling a certain way or to not feeling a certain way, to looking at characters differently as the story goes on. This is really brilliant. I would love to watch this again. And we'll probably end up buying it on Criterion at some point. I think so. I think so. It's sick. I would love, I'm like riding this high of showing people stuff. And I want to start, we've had a few movie nights recently that have just started sparking 
this inspiration in me to just like we should just start inviting more people over and be like we want to show you this movie come over and we're going to show you this movie we have snacks it's fine I uh my favorite part about inviting people over to watch movies is the question, do you want to watch it on the big TV with the little couch or the little TV with the big couch? Yes. <laughs> Those are the options. <laughs> we should or ju- in our bedroom. <laughs> we, ju- we just need to bite the bullet and get a big TV for the big couch. <laughs> this is true. Uh, All right. Three women. How did it make you feel? Like my insides were twisting and tightening until the very end. Again, in the best way possible. How about you? Just like this omnipresent sense of like dread and fascination yeah i was like i can't look away but i'm also so worried (laughs) yes nervous all right oh this next one you get a chat about it but you also get a story so many stories this week yeah stories all right we revisited an old favorite of ours in an attempt to see if it still holds up we went back to the aughts, which is a tricky territory to tread. We went to 2004 and revisited the drama, romance, sci-fi film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's directed by Michel Gondry, uh, written by him, as well as Charlie Kaufman and Pierre Bismuth. It stars Jim Carrey as Joel, Kate Winslet as Clementine, Tom Wilkinson as Dr. Merziwak, uh, Elijah Wood as Patrick baby boy mark ruffalo as stan david cross as rob jane adams as carrie and kirsten dunst as mary synopsis is joel barish heartbroken that his girlfriend clementine underwent a procedure to erase him from her memory decides to do the same however as he watches his memories of her fade away he realizes that he still loves her and may it may be too late to correct his mistake Pooh. okay what do you think of it but also Let's talk about what led us to watching it on this night as opposed to maybe earlier. <laughs> so Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a movie I think both of us really liked in our teen years. Loved it. Like independent of each other. We both really loved this movie. Um, like it's very when I think of like the movies I loved as a teenager, this is one of the first ones that comes to mind. And I have seen it so many times. This was one of those movies. It came out right in the sweet spot of our like preteen to teen like yeah transition from junior high to high school yes yeah um this movie has imprinted on me this was one of those movies that like if friends came over i'd be like do you just want to watch eternal sunshine and it'd be like (laughs) of course and watch it so many times yes but with all that being said we haven't watched it in probably over a decade yeah like you asked me this morning even you were like have Have we we ever ever watched it together yeah and i we have to have but i cannot remember us watching it together I feel like we have not watched it since we moved out, which was in 2011. We were 21 years old. Um, But I have seen it so, so many times. Now, the difficult thing of being a person who changes and grows is that we have revisited a lot of media that we loved when we were younger and been like, ooh, yikes. So 500 Days of Summer comes to mind, How I Met Your Mother, That 70s Show, anything by Judd Apatow. Yeah, and as as I feel like we've learned through doing this show, the aughts don't have a great track record of holding up. No. So I feel like this has been one that I've like honestly been scared to revisit because I'm like, I loved it so much. It meant so much to me. And even if it's not horrifically terrible, am I just going to be like, ah, manic pixie dream girl or like, you know, whatever. And also like, I, 
don't love Charlie Kaufman. Like he's just he's part of that like dude bro, I'm so smart. But I just write these things that I I don't know. Like I just I really didn't like I'm thinking of ending things. Being John Malkovich does not hold up as well as it could. But I know he has other stuff that maybe we'd like. But I just I have a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth when I like think of him. Mm-hmm. So I was just I was a little bit scared to revisit it. But our favorite theater um was playing it. And someone that we we now know had picked it as their staff pick, mm-hmm. which is like really cool. Um and was so excited to watch it and I'm like they have cool taste in film, so they still like it that much. It's probably really good. Um and so we decided to go out and see it. And the first thing that happened is it was so much busier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Like we got there half hour before mm, well there was like a uh organ show before the movie proper and we were about 15 minutes before that was starting so not really half an hour before but the lineup was around the corner and i was like whoa that like there's never a lineup when i don't expect there to be a lineup so that was and it was odd. A, and it was a sunday night too. yeah so i have a lineup out the door around the corner it, it, it's always exciting to see because we want Metro to stick around for a long time. So seeing it get supported like that on a Sunday night for a movie that we used to love. It's really cool. Yeah. So that got us honestly even more jazzed. I think about how busy it was, Yeah, but we were a little bit, um, because it was so busy and we didn't get there super early. We didn't have quite as many options for where to sit by the time we got in there. So we weren't sitting in like a spot we particularly loved, but that was okay. But then once the movie started, Oh my goodness. Some of the worst audience behavior I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like just endlessly restless. Mm -hmm. Like everyone is not everyone, but a a large portion of the audience are just moving their feet, digging in their bags, dropping their phones, um, whispering. And then some people just like outright talking. But the one that was just really getting us is there was two people in front of us. I'm presumed to be a couple taking videos of the movie on their phone. Yeah. Snapping pictures, taking videos. Also like, I, so I have some pretty intense sensory issues mm-hmm. and that couple who were also talking and, and taking pictures and taking videos on their phones, they keep like leaning into each other and then leaning away from each other and then leaning into each other and then leaning away from each other and then kissing each other and then moving away from each other. But the other thing that they were doing is one was like playing with the hair of the other one and the one person had really long hair. And so the person who was playing with the person with long hair's hair was like pulling it all the way to the side and up. Like it was like a, an elongated stroke. Like they'd yeah. start at, like the, <laughs> at the head and then pull the hair all the way to the tip. Which is just for somebody with sensory sensitivity, it's just like that constant motion was so distracting for me. But so when you combine all of that together, the audience is restless, people are talking, and then these two particular people who are right in our eye line are moving a bunch, their phones are out. Like we so typically, typically what we do honestly is we just move to a different spot. Right. And sometimes I'll say something on the way, but we just move to a different spot. If you've been listening to the show, you know this. But the movie was really busy. Yeah. And we were like, we couldn't really, like, we didn't want to be, like, futzing around and getting in other people's way as we try, tried to find a better spot. Often we just, like, I lean over to you. I say, I'm not going to be able to handle these people around us. We scope out a spot and we move immediately. Mm. The other thing that happened was that by the time we realized this wasn't going to die down, 
we were about 20 minutes into the movie and I'm like, I haven't paid attention to a lick of it. Like yeah. I, I have not been paying attention to the movie because I've been so distracted. Well, and the thing is too, is that I, like it was bothering me. And then when you leaned over and you were just like, I can't with these people, like we need to move. Cause like I was distracted to begin with. And then immediately just my, the way that my brain works, my eighty now ADHD <laughs> diagnosed brain is that I want to find a solution that's going to make both of us happy immediately. So I'm hyper-focusing on scoping the theater in the dark. I can't really <laughs> see, but trying to find spots we could potentially move to where we would disrupt people the least. And like another thing too is we go to Metro quite a bit, but there is this one person that is, I swear they go to every show that Metro has, but they always sit in the same spot. Which is like pretty close to the spot we like to sit in. Yeah, and we were sitting a few rows back from that person. And they got up to fully leave. They packed up all their stuff and were walking down the mezzanine. And then they, I, I watched just kind of the thought process happen in real time of the person got to the end of the stairs and internally just said, no, fuck this. Mm -hmm. And then turn right back around, go back to their spot and then turn around. I couldn't hear the dialogue, but that person said some words to these people about them talking, being obnoxious. Again, this person's not sitting behind those two, so they're probably unaware of the phones and the, some more of the stuff that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But then they were, then they started being quiet. But like the thing is, even if say we got up, I, I won't, I won't jump ahead, but I just wanted to note that bit. But we kind of reached a point where we're like it's been twenty minutes into the movie that we really wanted to give an honest chance to see if we still really liked it, and we haven't been able to pay attention to yeah. it. Yeah, so all. it felt unfair to the movie like i think the attitude like now we kind of have metro is generally awesome and the audiences are generally awesome um but i think what we've come to realize is that when they have these more popular showings people are kind of like oh i've seen this before and they kind of feel a little bit more like they can just talk through it and or like they just want to come and take pictures of like the fact that oh i'm seeing this movie i love in the theater and less want to watch the actual movie and now 90% of the theater could be being really great, but that 10% when you're in a theater of 500 people is is really impacting the rest of, of the audience. So I think something that I, I've come to realize is I need to be prepared for that and know if I'm willing to have that happen or not. Yes. And if I'm like, no, you know what? I I think for that particular movie, I don't want to hear people talking, then, mm -hmm. you know, because there's movies we've gone to where I'm like, yeah, I don't really care. That could be fun. Yeah. So we did something I don't think we've ever done since starting the show. Is we walked out of a theater. We got up and left. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, we had an experience pre-COVID where we went to see Dear Evan Hansen at um, the Jubilee. It's like a bigger. Uh, uh, like performance theater. Yeah. Performance theater in Edmonton. And the audio was all messed up. And they, I think there was like three times that they tried to restart it and then it wouldn't work. And you and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, let's just go. Let's call it. And, and we left. And then we found out that about 20 minutes after that, they ended up canceling the show. But what, because we had left earlier, we beat the traffic, we beat the parking lot and we just got out of there and we didn't waste 20 minutes sitting around. Honestly, one of the best decisions I'm so proud of us ever making. <laughs> and, and this one too, because we ended up hearing from some friends of ours uh, and also some people who listened to the show who were at the theater because we posted a little thing about it on our Instagram stories, we heard from people, it was bad and it just got worse. It's brutal. And so we were, you know, like 
somebody who we we go see movies with like fairly often um, had been sitting a couple of rows behind us, but was with some other people. And they were like, oh, man, when I saw you leave, I just thought I was hoping that you guys just went and found another spot. And then they said, but it was really bad. Like people started talking more and more people were out on their phones. And so in the end, I was like, I'm really glad that we left. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. It, well, that was a really long story, but what would you do in that situation? You know, yeah. And like what I was what I was going to say is that we actually got a number of people respond to our stories just about their experiences with movie theaters and how going to movie theaters now has just kind of made people. It's really it's experiences like that or similar to that that have deterred them from wanting to go to movie theaters at all or gives them anxiety whenever they even think about going to a movie theater. Or you'll hear from like, like we had some friends being like, oh, I just yell at them. But what do you do when it's not one person? Like when it's one person, that's different when like you can kind of be like, hey, be quiet or I'm going to go talk to somebody. It was not just one person. It was a lot of people. Well, and the thing is, too, that I was going to say is that that person telling those two people that were sitting in front of us to be quiet is one thing. If we went and got somebody that worked at the theater to do that, sure, they might be quiet, but that's not stopping them from pulling each other's hair and and keep like cuddling weirdly in a distracting way. Like they're allowed to do that. We can't be like, don't touch each other for the rest of the film. That's ridiculous. So it's things like that that are still going to be distracting. So there's only so much that staff can do when you're just dealing with a lot of people that aren't really there for the movie. They're there for... They're there for the gram, the TikTok. Yeah. Now, one thing I have, and then I really think we should start talking about the movie. <laughs> yes. Um, is there's a couple of people who were at that show... Um, and actually just because we watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I told like a very miniature version of this story on Letterboxd. Um, someone said to me that they, when they go to Metro, they've, they've noticed the same thing on some of these more popular movies, but that's why they sit at the front of the theater. So that's an option because that's what we generally do is when it gets busy and noisy, we'll move to the front. So we could preemptively be like, this is a popular movie. The audience might be poopy. Yeah. Let's sit at the front because then we won't see cell phones. I do think the mezzanine tends to be where the chattier people are. Yeah. I just like the mezzanine because I'm short. Yeah. <laughs> it lets me see well. I also like the seats in the mezzanine at, at that particular theater better. But that's something that we could do. Yeah. I think so, too. Anyway, so we ended up leaving because we wanted to give this movie a fair shake and see, do we like it as much as we did when we were teenagers or do we not? Um, and then you picked it as your mystery pick. Yes. And I was excited too because we could watch it with subtitles and we could watch it cuddling our cat. So it was lovely. Okay. What do you think of it? I really liked it. Yeah. It held up for me in a different way. Yeah. That was kind of the most surprising thing about re-experiencing this movie is we've had so much life happen to us in between the last time we watched it or even the first time we watched it when we were teenagers to now watching it as people in their 30s Mm -hmm. and it hit quite different and it hit quite hard by Mm -hmm. the end Mm -hmm. um in a very sad way for me um and I think it is just based on the fact of how much life experience I've had since seeing this as a teenager. Because as a teenager, I found that, and reflecting on it after watching it this time, 
there were so many kind of leaps that I had to make as a teenager of like, oh, if this happened in my life or if, if, I, yeah. if I experienced this or if I had a relationship like this, it was so many more ifs. And now it's just a reflection on the things that have happened. Something I completely agree with you and something that was really interesting to me about watching this. And I think it's kind of what stopped it from being like a full five out of five or something that made me like cry so much mm -hmm. is that I haven't had a significant relationship, romantic relationship loss. Yes. So this is something that um, in our rad wreck, like the thing that we're going to talk about there, it kind of came up to this idea of like the big X. Mm -hmm. I don't have a big X because I've been with you since I was 19 years old. <laughs> you know, yeah. I have some relationships I had in high school that like I still get annoyed about, but they, they weren't big. Yeah. We didn't live together. We were together for a few months at a time where a few months feels like a big deal. But you know, like you and I've been together so long and we've worked so hard at having like a relationship that we work through the tough stuff and we grow together and we encourage each other's individual growth and our growth as a couple that I think if the losses I had experienced, if one or more of them was a big romantic loss, that this movie would probably destroy me. Yeah. Because what I was relating to instead was like loss of friendship, mm -hmm. loss due to death. Mm -hmm. I imagine you were reflecting on like the active choice not to have a relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. You know, so that kind of loss, which I think is still incredibly relatable and the film has a lot of incredibly poignant things to say about what it feels like to not have someone in your life anymore. Mm -hmm. Whether that's because of death, because of your own active choice to not have them in your life or because of like something that wasn't your choice, but you have no say about. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about it on the show, but you know, my best friend of. 13 plus years ghosting me didn't have a say in that. Mm -hmm. And those were the things that I was thinking about yeah. when watching this movie. Yeah. And I hadn't experienced that kind of loss when you're when I was 14, 15, 16. Yeah. Thankfully. I mean, I was lucky not to have. Yeah. No, same. I was feeling a lot of that, but a big thing that I brought up immediately after the film ended was just, uh, the big point of the film or a big plot point of the film is this idea that you can erase memories so that you don't have to live with the pain of them anymore. Mm -hmm. Whether that be the, the loss of somebody, the loss of a pet or a relationship, whatever it is. But it just got me reflecting so heavily on the idea that how wrong that is. And while it can make you feel better in a moment of when you're feeling the, the, the most sadness or the most anger, it's that stuff that helps you grow. And this it's the stuff that can help you, ref, you can reflect back on. Um, and that if you just hit the restart button as if you've never experienced those feelings, it's just going to happen again. So is the idea then that you just keep doing that forever and ever and ever? That's just, in my eyes, that's not sustainable. And it doesn't allow you to grow as a person and reflect as a person and become a better version of yourself through these experiences. This, this, these are thoughts I was not happy no. when I was 14, 15, 16 watching this for the first time. I think when I was a teenager, I was thinking about what this film made me think about, and you already mentioned it, about what might happen in my future. Mm -hmm. And now I'm thinking about when I've been in times where I wished I'd never met somebody. 
right? Or, you know, it was very serendipitously just a handful of weeks ago, I was talking with Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Hi. <laughs> um, about, you know, about loss and tragedy. And, and she brought up, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind was not on our minds, but she brought up, you know, that that really terrible moment when you've experienced a loss or or had something really tragic happen where just for a split second, you're like, I wish I had never met that person. So I didn't have to feel this way. Yeah. Right. And that's what this film is looking at. And who hasn't felt that way where it's just like, well, I wish that we never met each other because then I wouldn't hurt the way that I hurt. But that feeling mostly goes away. Yeah. And if you were to have access to something like this in that moment of such pure pain, it makes sense in the moment to try and heal yourself in that way because who wants to feel that kind of pain, but you're robbing yourself of something in the long term. And that's ultimately what this film is exploring. And I think quite beautifully so. Yeah. And and there's just like scary aspects of it too, because even though, you know, there's moments where people have had this procedure done, but there is just like this animal instinct part of them that never goes away. Like it's, it's kind of the, it's almost like the bodily trauma that happens when you're when you experience something as painful as what somebody's experienced that there's this bodily response to it that isn't necessarily set in memory mm-hmm. but your body remembers that feeling and yeah, there's- I f- and I felt like that was portrayed really really well this time around um it's just, this hit like I said this just hit different <laughs> <laughs> you're not like other girls <laughs> but in terms of the the craft of the film and not getting getting out of the the heady headiness weeds a little bit Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are so good in this actually everybody the stat the the cast is really stacked in this movie yeah I tend to um I find Jim Carrey incredibly annoying in his comedic roles and I like him a lot in his non-comedic roles <laughs> yeah there's just like this uh there's this sincerity and vulnerability that exists in his performances whether it's this or truman show that yeah it works for me it's the same thing i feel like we mentioned it before but like will ferrell and stranger than fiction Mm -hmm. it's just hitting on some of that magic and we were talking about this this morning i think where we we mentioned off the top talking about charlie kaufman we can feel on this view i think we both felt the kaufmanisms cropping up here or there but maybe because it was co-written with two other people and maybe just the fact that Michelle Gondry has this really unique style of filmmaking that it felt like the Kaufmanisms were tempered by a certain kind of sweetness and that I feel like that helps this stand the test of time a little bit better agreed because being John Malkovich I still think is a completely zany and amazing concept but I didn't feel as great about it as I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't loved Kaufman's later work, mm-hmm. as I mentioned. Um, but I think what makes me still really like this movie in particular is like the surreality of it. Like I am so compelled by explorations of memory. Mm-hmm. Like it's what I love about After Sun. Yeah. Right. Not to always talk about After Sun, but <laughs> I, I love the idea of memory, the idea of me- memory not being perfect. I am incredibly compelled by the idea that we can't ever really know what's going on in somebody else's head and that even our own brains and memories are not totally reliable. 
mm-hmm. um, or truthful to us. So I, I, I still found that amazing about this in the way that he uses the visual stuff. Good words coming from me here um, to depict that, to, yeah. to, to depict memory, to depict how memory can be cavernous, how it can collapse on itself, how it can be warm and safe, how it can be scary, how it can turn from warm to like horrific in a second. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. Like when it really starts to get into that portion of the film, I still think it's just astounding. Yeah. And the last like 15, 20 minutes is devastating. Yeah. And I feel like the reason that it works so well is the the performances from the leads is so incredible because I was afraid you had mentioned too, like, and I was feeling the same way that we were going to be kind of entering the cringe zone a little bit with this one, um, particularly around Kate Winslet's character. Um, but I, I felt so much for her as a complicated person. And a person that's just trying to navigate life in her own way. According to Wikipedia, she's an anti-manic pixie dream girl because she has a line where she says, I am not a concept. (laughs) And I don't think you can just put that in there and be like, she's not a manic pixie dream girl. But I do think, I do think the film, um, I think if you read the film the way I often read it as a kid, which is just like, oh, they're perfect for each other. Yeah. I think you're actually misunderstanding it. And I think I misunderstood it. And I think I misunderstood the ending as a kid too. Yeah. And I feel like that's where the the ending, like that last 15, 20 minutes is where it kind of bucks that trend specifically for Kate Winslet's character. Because what they give yeah. her to work with, I found extremely powerful. She's really, she's really, really great in it. And it's, I had never thought about it this way. And the nice IMDb trivia was saying that like both, both Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are playing against type. Mm-hmm. Because Kate Winslet's playing like quite a big and often funny and often like, biting performance and she's usually more like grounded and dramatic Mm -hmm. um and then jim carrey is usually so like annoyingly over the top for me um except the mask i i i bet it's terrible i bet it's horrific (laughs) i bet it's so offensive i have not seen it in decades but i loved that movie as a kid right um he's playing such a like quiet character Mm-hmm. But I never thought about that, that Kate Winslet is also playing against type. It's just we, you know, we take drama as just neutral. But I actually think her performance is really different from what she normally does. And, and she's so good at it. Well, it's it's interesting because that you saying that makes me think of. It makes me think of what like the Safties did with Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems, where there's still the Adam Sandler isms that exist within that performance. But it's just writing it for a different kind of character yeah. and utilizing them differently. Yep. And I feel that with Jim Carrey here and I feel like that with Kate Winslet here. They both do great. Yeah. Definitely dressing like it's the 2000s. <laughs> yeah. We can't do much about that. Yeah. And it's definitely like it just missed the boat on like higher definition. Yeah, it's got that that aughts sheen. Yeah, which we, you know, needs a restoration, I yeah. guess. <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, it it held up. And I, I think the thing that was most interesting to me about revisiting it is my favorite thing about art being that it can mean something different to us as we change and grow. And I think the best art does that. It grows and it changes with us. Mm-hmm. And we are we can be open to how we connect with it in different or deeper or or similar, doesn't matter, ways. 
as, mm. as we have new life experiences and as we get older. And I actually really appreciate how differently I connected with it now than I did when I was younger. Yeah. And I'm so pleasantly and happily surprised that I was able to do that. So it was a little sad that we didn't get to see it in the theater, but I think we made the right call because I definitely don't think I would have been able to connect with it Yeah, in that particular environment. Yeah, I totally agree. So how did it make you feel? It made me feel a sweet sadness at the necessity of pain and loss. Mm, that's well put. How did it make you feel? It made me refi- it made me feel reflective on life, love, and loss that I've experienced since seeing this for the first time. Man, so good media does. Heck yeah. Speaking of good media, let's name some dads of the week. Are you saying we're good media? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. Ooh, is your bad dad nominee? I have nomin I have nominated. <laughs> I've nominated Dr. Mirzlak. Yeah, yeah. He, I went between him and the person I ultimately ended up choosing. All right. But uh, go on. Tell me why. I feel like if, if we think of him in, in a parental role and, you know, anytime there's authority involved, there's a degree of like that echoing of a parental role. So as like the head doctor in a like highly emotional and irreversible procedure that he has like championed. Um, I find that he's actually quite manipulative and coercive in terms of consent. Um, This is something that I think parents can do to their children, right? Where it's like, oh, no, you do want to do this or you don't feel that way, you know? And I think that that is a highly damaging thing to do. Um, I also think that he comes across with like this air of sweetness. Exactly. And and that's what's so dangerous about it. Um, I think that he manipulates emotion particularly um, and often manipulates emotion for his own needs. Yep. And I just think those are bad qualities in a parent. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with all that. And I, I went back and forth between him and my pick and my, my pick is just one degree of separation away because I picked Patrick baby boy <laughs> as my bad dad nominee from, uh, from eternal. Yeah, why did we want to name our cat that? I don't know. It's great. It's a great name. Um, he just gives incel ish energy. True. Um, makes some very poor ethical decisions, which as a dad, it's not, that's not ideal. But he's also manipulative and he doesn't see the issue with the kind of manipulation that he's doing, which is a really big and very dangerous and hurtful problem. Um, but I think that his badness stems from Dr. Merziak. Howard. Howard. <laughs> uh, so I, I will happily acquiesce because I think he is the, the batter of yeah, the two Yeah, I dads. think if you look at it that way that Patrick's CD ethics and honestly um, stands as well. Yeah. I don't feel good about anybody that no, works there. That's coming from a place of like the way that Howard leads them. Yes. And that's filtered. Like if we, if we think of it in those terms as like, he is a parental figure to them in the workplace. He's being a bad parental figure to them. Yeah. So Dr. Mearsbach, don't, don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Go go bye bye. Yeah, pee pee poo poo. Bad dad. Who's your nominee? I feel like we might have the same one. Okay. 
Uh, are we going to say at the same time? Okay. Three, two, one. So, so young. young. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> From Rice Boy Sleeps. Yeah. Yes, of course. What, uh, what do you have on So Young? So I feel like it would be easy to reduce her character to that like selfless mother. Yeah. Which is a problematic character, I think, because I, you know, and we've talked about this when we watched me talk about Kevin last week and the lost daughter a few weeks back about like this desire for complicated depictions of motherhood that don't portray women who do give up parts of themselves for the kids as like heroic. Mm. And I felt like at first you could see that in this character, Mm. but she is so much more than that. And I think she transcends that stereotype that might seem like it's appearing at the beginning because I think what she does is she prioritizes her child learning rather than her child feeling good. Yeah. Like she doesn't cradle him. She wants him to learn how to be a good person and to learn from the hard things that happen in his life. And I think she puts herself first a lot of the time. Yeah. Maybe not first, but she does prioritize herself as well. Yeah. It's, it's like, I'm not immune to the hardships that I have to experience in the world. So you're not going to be either. Yes. Yeah. But I also think she doesn't like put everything about her own life on the back burner for her son, which could really reduce her to that stereotype of like she's own. Like, I mean, even the synopsis says like it's about her building a better life for her son. And it is, but not at the expense of her own life, mm-hmm. which I think is so important. Right. Like, I think she also leads by example, by creating a life for herself. One of the things that I found so admirable, admirable about her is how she leads with honesty. Yes. Um, there were a couple moments where I thought she wouldn't and mm-hmm. I was like really worried about the ethics of that. And then she always ultimately did. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I feel like from beginning to end of the film, she's open to growing yes. and she's open to learning and she's open to new experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've pretty much encapsulated everything that I have. I, I just love that. Yeah. She is willing to learn from her experiences. She's so strong and she's badass. Yeah. Uh, and she fights for the ones that, uh, she loves including herself yep exactly and all button it was saying god damn she makes great lunches yeah jesus i really wanted to eat all of the food in the movie i wish um yeah so if that's not another selling point to go see rice boy sleeps where you can i don't know what the heck else <laughs> we could say about it <laughs> um okay so so, so young so young be, be our dad. dad okay kylie I'm going to let you hit us with the rad wreck. <laughs> so I was very excited. So excited that we had to watch while we were in Calgary, middle of the day for one of my big time crushes. May Martin's new comedy special sap came out on uh, Netflix. Many people have Netflix or ability to do a free trial of Netflix or ability to find a password from somebody else who has Netflix. But I highly recommend if you like comedy and you like total babes, um, to watch Mae Martin's Sap. Um, it's a very sweet, I think, comedy special. Yeah, it's our kind of humor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, this past week it was uh, Trans Day of Visibility and Mae Martin is a trans non-binary comedian. And so I think that's a part of the special, certainly. It's not all of the special. And I think uh, May balances that so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they have to say about that is important and and relevant, particularly to what they're speaking about in the realm of comedy. But I think the special, special is just ultimately really 
sweet and lovely and Canadian. Yeah. Um, all I'll say is the reveal of what why the special is titled what it's titled hit me in, in just hit me right in the heart. Yeah. It's really beautiful. While also being hilarious and a hilarious experience overall. And while also making me fall more in love with May Martin. Yeah. I'm like, it feels like a crush that's not like so out of the realm of possibility. Because <laughs> May Martin is like relatively our age and hangs out in Canadian locales. Yeah. I'm like, and gay. Yes. I'm like, I for sure know somebody who knows somebody who knows May Martin. The Canadian queer scene is too small for that not to be the case. <laughs> the problem is May Martin has lived in the UK for a long time. And so I don't know how into like the local queer scene they are. Right. Also, fun fact, they're really good friends with Roy Kent from Ted Lasso, mm -hmm. which I love. That's so special. It's, the special was also directed by Abby Jacobson uh, from Broad City and the, a league of their own. the new League of Their Own series on Amazon. So just queer people doing great queer things. Yeah. So highly recommend uh, May Martin Sapp on Netflix. Give us a shout if you watch and have something to say about it. Yeah. But, uh, hey, this was great. Thank you for listening. We drop a new episode. I thought you were talking every... to me there and I'm like, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. You, thank you. Uh, we drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, follow us and sign into our DMs over on baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. But that is going to do it for these Celsius audience members today. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. <laughs> I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.